everyone. Today we have uh, interviewing uh, Lois Talon. He's a senior mobile producer at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and founder of the company Pocket Proof. So welcome, Lois. Hi there. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to speak on part of a course. It's a pleasure to be here. From from rainy New York, I look forward to answering your questions and sharing my experience with you. Well, thank you. All right. So can you please tell us a little about yourself, like what inspired you to choose a career focused on mobile technology for museums? And also, can you tell us why you founded the company Pocket Proof and can you give us a little example of one of your most successful projects? Absolutely. So, actually, I'm an art historian by training. Um, I actually was passionate about German art, interwar German art, so 1920s to 1935. And... While doing my master's, in fact, I became a little bit overly obsessed with uh, obsessive audio guides. I started listening to far too many, far too many audio guides, and considered mm-hmm. them to be this back in nineteen, in sorry, nineteen two thousand and four, two thousand and five, before kind of we had smartphones. Um, back then, we had PDAs; they were called personal digital assistants, which were nearest you had to a screen-based device. But pe- many people were looking at what might be possible, what might be the next step for audio guides. I started doing a lot of research in that space, eventually leading to actually publishing a book all about mobile in museums in 2008. Um, and 2007, of course, the iPhone comes out. Um, 2008, the next model of the iPhone is much more, much more based around apps. I think that was a moment where mobile in museums began to, began to take off. To be honest, with audio guides in the past, museums didn't pay that much attention to the kind of content and the kind of experience they were delivering. I think the advent of the smartphone and technologies like that got people much more aware of what of more powerful types of experiences we could deliver via mobile. And because I've been by that point I've been researching in this space, my book came out and I guess I got contacted by more and more people interested in in developing mobile experiences for an institution. And I guess that actually pretty much led quite organically to the starting of Pocket Proof, which was a company I ran for four years and still exists now in the UK, um, in a in a in a kind of smaller, more dormant format. Um, I still do work for maybe now and then. And at Pocket Proof, we just basically help museums adapt to what was possible with mobile. That was very specifically our aim. We, we told ourselves there's a lot of things that mobile can do. And our aim was to help museums pick the right things to do. What's actually worth doing? What fulfills the museum's mission? And once you've decided that, how to do it in the most sustainable way, in the most operationally reasonable way, and making sure it's resource effective, making sure it hits your target audiences and your objectives as, as well as possible. So it was much more on the strategy and design side where we worked. And then recently, I mean, well, Pocket Proof, I, one of my clients became the Met. And I worked for them as a year, for, for a year as a, uh, as a consultant. And then recently, about a couple of months ago, they offered me a, an opportunity to come in-house and lead here for, for a few years for a particular project being funded by Bloomberg. So now I'm, in, now I'm in-house at the Met, working as senior mobile producer, as you said. So that's kind of my path. I wouldn't call myself a techie. Um, I would call myself mm-hmm. more... A, an art historian uh, by training, um, a kind of digital, and what I'd call myself a, a nerd, and in some ways from just reading and becoming passionate in this area. Um, but when it comes to kind of coding and techie talk, I get more intelligent people to to chime in at that point. Nothing wrong with being a nerd. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm happy with it. <laughs> All right, so it kind of I guess leads us into the next question that I saw that you recently joined uh, the Met as their senior mm-hmm. mobile uh, producer. 
is this a big change from being the director or founder of Pocket, Pocket Proof, or are you still managing that company as well? It is quite a big change. Um, it's interesting when you work in this sector. I mean, either you work for a museum or you work for a company that serves museums. Um, and in both environments, there's a lot of similarities. I find most people who work in the museum sector as a whole are very passionate about what they do. And a few mm -hmm. people work in the museum sector for the money. We work here because we love what museums do. And I think as a vendor or as a as a museum employee, you have that same inspiration. I think when you work as a vendor, what's interesting is that you work on a greater diversity of projects. I mean, any one time at Pocketproof, we'd have four projects going. Um, and they would vary as much as, I mean, over my four years there, they varied from the Louvre, in their building, the Louvre Museum in Abu Dhabi, their building, the National Museum of Qatar, smaller museums like the Bonifantin Museum in Holland, it's a beautiful kind of medieval art collection, the National Gallery in the UK, um, we did a project with Louis Vuitton in Paris, and out in, in the US, the MFA Boston and the Whitney, and the Whitney Museum. So you get a large diversity of institutions to work with, and I felt that part I learned a great deal about. It also gives a greater variety. Uh, but as a consultant, you know, you're brought in to solve a particular problem, then you leave again. You don't get as hands-on. You don't get as your hands as dirty on the implementation side. It's interesting now being in-house. I'm not working on as large a scale, larger range of projects. I'm working on two main projects and a number, number of other things, but I'm two, two main projects, and I'm very hands-on. I'm getting involved in all the decision-making, on getting people invested in a project, explaining what we're doing. Whereas previously as a consultant, I'd tell someone, oh, you need to explain to people what you're doing. Whereas now it's me doing the explaining. It's me trying to influence people in the museum to agree to do particular, make particular decisions. So that's the core difference mm -hmm. between the two. I, I enjoy working in both environments. I'm enjoying working at Met in this environment right now, and I certainly loved working as a, as a vendor at Pocketproof as well. I think when you, certainly when you start a career in, in museums, those are like kind of your two big choices. And both have pros and cons. I can see that. All right. Um, what are the best kinds of tools for a museum to use in their first app? Do you think, in your in your opinion? What do you mean by that? Best. What What do you define as a tool? Um. Hmm. Let me think. Oh, best kinds of tool. Um. You see, I ask that. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I mean, I asked. I I put that question back to you because I hear more and more museums saying we need to make an app, and I do very often question why. Um, you know, well, I'm not saying me the app. personally. Mm -hmm. Me personally, I don't. I I I think apps have their have their place, but I don't think that every institution should have one because I feel like sometimes they're overused and you get kind of confused on what institutions have what apps and what does that do for you. And to me, it's just confusing. <laughs> and I absolutely agree with that. I actually really very strongly agree with that. I hear far too. I think it's become a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to say I have to have an app without actually thinking why. Um, I always tell people when, when, you're, when you're making any digital product, we'll pick apps in particular, but any digital product, you're effectively making an answer to a problem. Like whether it's a kiosk, whether it's a website, you're saying there is a need here and we're making something to fulfill that need. And the app should be fulfilling a need. And I call it, the app is the answer. The thing that's more difficult to actually come up with is what's the question. What's the question the app is answering? 
I know at the last Museums on the Web, we presented a paper called exactly that, you know, if, if the app is the answer, what was the question? Because I think far too often people are just saying, oh, we, we need an app. And they're not thinking why. And actually, I find those questions about why, they are actually the most difficult to articulate. Actually, creating a digital product, making a kiosk, making a website, making an app, it's actually pretty easy to make. Making a good one, that's the challenge. Making something mm -hmm. that people yeah. will use, that's the challenge. And those questions, they get solved in the first month of a project. The first month. If a project lasts 12 months or 9 months, it's that first month when you decide why are we doing it? What's the strategic need for it? I swear, I, I, I look at these projects and I look at digital projects from other institutions. And you focus on thinking, actually, the success or failure of a project was actually predetermined from that very initial point. It was oh, wow. the success. It was all comes down to why you did it. If there was a good reason for doing it, if there was really strong decision making, a strategic need, the project will succeed because people will see its value and they'll invest the time in making sure it works properly. If they did it more because oh we need an app, you know if you need an app, I could probably code an app, a really bad one. But just like if someone <laughs> said to me I need I need a house, I could technically build a house. I'll make it out of cardboard. It will last a few days, but I can actually <laughs> you know technically build a house. But if you're a reasonable person and you want a house, you go and see an architect, you go and see someone who's qualified, and you tell them, actually, I want a house, I need two bedrooms, one bathroom, we want no stairs because we want to make sure it's accept uh, my, my, my grandparents can get around all the time, we need a basement, a little wine cellar, please, and like, you give a specification, you, you tell them your needs, and you describe it to them, and if you were to say, oh, and we need, it to, and we need the house to be able to move around from, from this country to this country at different times, so, okay, well, what you're describing isn't a house, it's a caravan. And I, I don't say that like flippantly, but, you know, sometimes I hear people describe what we need an app for. I'm like, well, it's not an app you need. It's not a house you need. It's a, it's a caravan. It's a website. It's a mobile website, whatever it might be. But I think too often we, it's actually easier. It's actually easier as a phrase to say, I need an app, than it is to say, I need an experience for young children, which, is, which helps them engage with the artwork. You say, well, what do we mean by young children? What do we mean by engage with artworks? And then we'll say, okay, young children, I'm actually thinking of school groups specifically probably 9 to 13 years old. And when I say engage, I guess what I'm saying is I want them to be able to play with the artworks. I want them to reinterpret them. I want them to add them to their daily life. Whatever it might be, there are loads of reasons for doing an app. But making the app itself isn't actually the thing that's most important. It's why you want to do it. What was the, quest what was the question? And I tell you, that question is the first thing people work on on any digital project. But it's so often skimmed over. And it's so often in an institution, people don't actually really understand why you have an app. There are so many apps I look at now, I go, why did you guys make this? I mean, seriously. Like, why? What was the point? And they go, oh, well, you know, well, we thought it'd be a good idea. Someone came along. Oh, they, they gave us the software for free, so we just gave it a go. And I'm like, well, that in itself isn't a good enough reason either. I mean, there's lots of things you can get for free. You could get cardboard for free to build your house. You still wouldn't do it because it's not the right thing. But yeah, I find that that thinking hasn't quite... Inter isn't, isn't always remembered when it comes to making any type of digital products in a museum, and particularly apps. And that's my theory on why there are a lot, a lot of apps, museum apps out there, which aren't high quality. I mean, if I was to go over, I think over half the apps for museums right now aren't the highest quality, because they're being made a little bit too quickly, and not with full thinking behind it. No, it just seems like when I've skimmed over, you know, apps and like, you know, going through museums, it just seems like, oh, you know, it's a popular trend. Everyone has an app. We have to join on the bandwagon. And it's 
what you bring up is perfectly correct. I mean, you know, there are really some bad apps out there that really serve no purpose, honestly, and don't really enrich your museum experience at all. I mean, it's worth remembering that this is a typical trend when you have a new technology coming out. We're still on the hype curve of these things. I mean, when websites came out, everyone had to make a website. They literally made a website, put it inside a glass bottle, and threw it out to sea to see what would happen. And there were some really bad websites. And they're improving now because we've had more time to think about it. And, like, apps are here to stay. There's no doubt apps are here to stay. And we're just in that period where people are making them. We're, not go- we're, we're focusing on the tech rather than the experience, and we're learning. And hopefully in five years' time, we'll be in a much better place than we are right now. Because we'll have more best practice principles around it. We'll be rebuilding some of the stuff. I mean, I could point out dozens of really fantastic apps. But they do get kind of like noised out, let's say, by all the, like kind of overshadowed by all the noise we get from ones that are less creative. Ones where you wonder why it is actually an app. You wonder why they bothered. But there are, I mean, I think of things like Street Museum by the Museum of London. I think of Main Street USA by the Smithsonian Institute, Tate Trumps and Magic Tape Wall by the Tate. Those kind of experiences I find completely stunning. They made something new possible. And what they made new, what they made possible, was something you could only do on mobile. And those I, I consider to be pretty beautiful projects. They did something completely new. They used mobile for what it was good for. They used apps for what they are good for. That's where I think we have a real success in it. But there are, since there's so much noise out there as well, I think they kind of get a little bit overshadowed. Um, it's funny, I tease people. I tell, you know, I, many people will tell me they're not big audio guide watchers, audio guide listeners, and they don't take an audio guide. And they think we're going to solve that problem by making it into an app. If it's an app, people will take the audio guide. And I was like, oh, no, they won't. People get tired of, mm-hmm. people get tired of apps. I mean, people already are getting tired of apps. We don't download them in the same way as we used to. People were almost junkies at one point with apps. Like, oh, another one, download it, download it, download it. And that's not where we are anymore, and it's certainly not where we're going to be in five years' time. We've got to be more compelling. Like, why? I remember doing my, one of my very first questions I asked, and I think I actually got a presentation about this on SlideShare, um, when I visited lots of museums um, back in 2008, 2009, around the world. And the one big takeaway I had, the one biggest question I had was we, ne- we don't fulfill, we don't tell visitors why we're doing it. We don't advertise, even with audio guides right now. If you think of a number of museums, that where it says, they say, do you want the audio guide? That's the advert. Even in the Met downstairs right now, in our main hall, it says the audio guide. You go to the audio guide desk. We don't tell people what's on the audio guide. If I was to ask you right now, do you want to go to the cinema tonight? You would say, well, Loic, what's on? And if I said Spice Girls, the movie, you'd be like, well, no, I'm busy tonight. Or if I said it's Matrix 3, you'd go, well, I haven't watched that for a long time. And I was confused the first time I watched it. Why don't I go and watch it again? Because in fact, it's the content that gets us to the cinema. That's what's exciting about the cinema, it's what's on. If it's a bad film, you're not interested. And of course, when you take the same analogy and you apply it to audio guides, or apply it to apps, very often we're advertising the app, we're advertising the audio guide, we're advertising the technology. We're not advertising the content. We're not ex- actually advertising the bit which is the most interesting for the user. Museums do this every single time, and there's a real transformation needed there on how we communicate about these things. Definitely some food for thought there. I am excited to see what is going to happen in the next five years. Mm-hmm. So it should be an interesting time. There's a lot there. There's a lot there in this field, and I think in digital as a whole, I mean, even for your, for your class as a whole. What's exciting is like we are basically inventing the rules right now. We are actually inventing rules of how digital will be used in museums. 
and it's a great time to get involved. And like, it feels very evolutionary and quite exciting, like kind of field space to like start having ideas and start building in. I certainly love it. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you sound very passionate about it, which makes it very a lot more interesting, at least to me. I think it's important. So, I think we, that's how we, that's how we do our best work. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Next question. Far away. Oh, oh, that's fine. Um, so we were talking a little about, um, as you were saying, uh, children's apps and and such. Um, next question kind of follows it a little bit. Uh, how do you think a museum with a primarily older demographic should introduce mobile apps, and should we try to appeal to this older audience or build a new more tech-savvy audience? There's not one answer to this question. This question is... I mean, yeah, there's no one answer to this. It depends on the needs of the institution. If someone told me our demographic is all older, 65, 65 and older, I would definitely suggest not to make an app immediately. Um, or just, first of all, do your research. I mean, we're, we're researching right now how, what percentage of our visitors and what type of visitors have what type of phone. Do they use the internet on their phone? Those are big questions for us. You've got to do the research research first. As to whether should we try and appeal to older audiences or more tech-savvy audiences, to be honest, in five years' time, or 10 years' time, I mean, I'll say five even, or even like less. I mean, I see 65-year-olds, 70-year-olds now having an iPhone and being perfectly confident in making it work and becoming better at it. So I don't think there is a, a, a huge blockage there. As to whether we should try and appeal to more tech-savvy audiences, I would love to know exactly what that means. Um, I, I, I find these, I, you hear terms like tech-savvy or the young or the iPhone generation. These terms are kind of like bandied around and thrown around as definitions of target audiences. And they're not actually that specific. We're not ever, ever quite sure who we're, you know, who we really mean by those people. Um, I'm a big believer when we do any kind of project, most important thing is, you know, but I'm repeating myself a bit, you know, if the app is the answer, what's the question? And the question it has two parts to it. It has, who's it for? What does it do? Who's it for? What does it do? That's all that matters. And we need to find who's it for. Saying tech-savvy audiences, well, what do, does that just mean someone can use... Someone's a coder. Does it mean someone uses an iPhone? I mean, I'm sure there's lots of people who know how to use an iPhone who wouldn't call themselves tech-savvy. They just know how to use a particular device. Um... So everything to do with target audiences, whether it's older or younger, etc., I think that's an institution-by-institution institution case. And I just think, because there is no one rule about when the museum should use an app, it really is just a platform. Sometimes they're useful, sometimes they're not. Sometimes, mo sometimes websites are useful, sometimes they're not. Sometimes paper guides are useful, sometimes they're not. Sometimes a book is useful, sometimes it's not. Like, each well, platform it has its... Pardon? That's what you're saying. Say that again? It kind of just depends on the mission of the institution. Absolutely, one size does not fit all. It really doesn't. We just that you've got to go back to the question of why are we doing it? Because as as you said right at the start, and I agreed, like not every museum necessarily needs an app. They just don't. No. Um, I mean, it's possible in the future that they may well do. I mean, I believe every museum needs a website. Oh, definitely. So. And there is a lot, like there is a, there is a question of you know, how big apps will become in a, in our in our lives. Maybe apps will actually start playing a greater role in our access to information than websites. I have no idea. It's possible. Maybe, maybe not. 
So maybe there will be a point where museums do need an app. I don't think we're there right now. I think we should a lot of museums spend a little bit more time making their website better, to be honest, uh, or building okay. a mobile-friendly website. I agree. Hmm. So let's see. Uh, so uh, have you thought of any projects for Google Glasses, and would you consider this a mobile uh, technology? Because I, I think I've seen a recent thing on Google Glasses, but I'm not very uh, knowing on that whole genre very much. <laughs> So Google Glass, there's actually a very interesting blog written on the Metropolitan Museum of Art's blog. If you look for Digital Undergrounds, um, which is a blog from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Digital Media Department, right, you'll find a blog by Neil Stimler, Neil Stimler, who actually has a pair of Google Glasses here in the, uh, here in the office, and mm. wrote a blog piece about how he thought they could be used. So I guess that would be my first pointer from a, uh, from a museum perspective on it. I'm no pro on Google Glasses. What I will say, though, and like, I, this your second part of a question I think is interesting. You say, do you, would you consider this a mobile technology? I th actually think the word mobile is way too overused. If you, um, I always get people to like, so I actually use the term mobile, and I think of the term mobile specifically to talk about smartphones. I actually try to avoid people even talking about tablets as mobile. And my reason for that is that tablets have a different usage scenario to smartphones. Technically, a laptop is mobile. You can carry it around with you. It's a mobile technology. A watch is a mobile technology. Google Glasses is a mobile technology. All of these are mobile technologies, but they're all used in different ways. The kind of experience one expects from their watch or from their smartphone or from a tablet, the places where they use it, these are all very different. Making one experience that works in Google Glasses, tablets, laptops, and smartphones is not going to happen. But they are all mobile experiences. I actually think we need to be more specific when we talk about what we mean by mobile. And certainly on all my projects, I really tell people right from the outset, when I use the term mobile, I am talking about smartphones. Tablets people use differently. People use a tablet when they're sitting at home, on their sofa, having a cup of coffee, watching TV, surfing, browsing. It's a more chilled out experience. People don't whip out their, their tablet to check, check the train time. People whip out their phone. It's a different usage scenario. I think that usage scenario is the important bit to us as designers, as museum professionals, trying to think of the best platform, the best opportunities to use a technology. We've got to think, how is it being used? What's the scenario? So they are all mobile technologies, but we need to be more specific about that when we talk about them. We need to really say, what are we talking about exactly? Are we talking about Google Glasses? Are we talking about tablets, laptops, smartphones, watches, iPod touches? What is it exactly? And that's, that's for us a good to define. Point. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> no. I didn't even think about that a watch to be mobile. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah, it's always yeah you're you right. Oh. You learn something new every day. Uh, let's see. Um, so your project with the Imperial War Museum looked extremely challenging. Uh, what are your recommendations for unifying departments uh, when working towards a mobile experience? So I'm going to take the second part of that question specifically. I'm not going to talk too much about the Imperial War Museum just because I'm not quite at liberty to talk about my clients too openly. Um, but okay. just the idea of how you get departments to work together 
um, whether it's a mobile experience or any other kind of digital project. And the biggest piece of advice is just to take the time to explain to people what you're doing. I find too often people working in digital take too much for granted, and we're almost happy to hide behind the technology and hide behind the fact that people don't quite understand what we're talking about. I actually think the best way of getting people invested into a project cross-departmentally is by going to see them, talking them through what you're doing, inviting them to big meetings, to group meetings, where you talk through the objectives and the target audience and help them understand what's happening. Because I really believe, like, visitor services departments, for example, they're very rarely brought into a project right at the start. Often they're brought in right at the end. We said, oh, we made this app, guys. Tell visitors about it. And visitors are like, well, no one ever told us this was happening. If we were making an app, we'd love it to have done this, this, and this. Uh, oh, well, sorry, it hasn't done that, but it's doing this. Just tell people about it. And you're changing people's workflow. You're changing, actually, what they have to do. The best way of investing people is by running workshops with them, bringing them into the decision-making process. That's how you'll get them involved. And I, I, there's no other way of doing it. It's just it's a time-based thing. I mean, I look at here at the Met. We are working our way to making a Met app. And we're, I'm spending two months on the planning phase and on unifying departments. So all I am doing is planning, figuring out what the question is an app will answer, and then making the departments of the museum understand why we think that's an important question, understand what it means to answer that question, what I'm going to need from them to, to successfully answer that question. We're running workshops of kind of like almost 40 people in the museum, um, bringing them in to actually brainstorm what kind of content should be on this app. It really takes just time and explanations and being really clear and like getting rid of the technology terminology. Stop talking about CMSs in that way or iOS, whatever it might be, any terminology that could alienate someone. We've just got to train ourselves out of it. We've got to train ourselves out of it. We've got to talk in a very clear way about the reason behind why we're doing it. If people understand the reason behind how we're doing it, in the end, whether it's coded in HTML5 or native or whatever the devil, people don't care about that. They just want to know why you're doing it. Is it valuable? And if they believe in it, then it'll go ahead. And you'll have their investment throughout the project. Again, though, I'd emphasize that's work that takes place right at the start of a project. It's very difficult to invest someone into a project later on. When you're halfway through a project, it's very difficult to say, oh, guys, I need your input. And they'll be like, well, what is this project? Why wasn't I brought in earlier? Mm -hmm. Fair enough that they ask that. I would ask that too. So bring them in right at the start. Spend that extra time because I think it pays dividends towards the end. I used to always joke as well, I mentioned earlier, like going into museums and like having a look at what they're doing. I remember one of my things I used to always, uh, I, I say, and I still say actually, so I can, I can go into a museum, look at their audio guide or look at their app, and I can guess which department delivered it. Because you can always tell if Vista services were included or marketing or digital media or curatorial or education. Each one, of those pro each one of those departments has a particular slant on how they'll do a project. And you can actually start spotting those. You can start spotting trends. Actually, very uh, very easy to see which projects were delivered with, uni with a unified department and which ones weren't. I think you bring up some good points. Definitely, you know, people need to know what is going on at the beginning, and they will be able to understand it more and know what's going on. And I've had personal experiences with, you know, projects like that. So. Yeah, you know, I, I I agree. Definitely need to take the time to explain in you know layman's terms somewhat to someone so that they're not going, oh, what do you mean by that? And you know, I I totally understand. 
All right. So our next question is a little long. Mm-hmm. But uh, in your museum mobile survey of 2013, our museums appear to have the highest percentage of using mobile compared to other museums and culture experience. Uh, do you have a theory about why there is such a big difference? Uh, could it be because ex- exhibitions and other museums can integrate more digital elements in their exhibitions? Uh, while it's easier for art museums to allow visitors to obtain additional information from mobile apps without interrupting the contemplative experience of other visitors? It's a big question. I mean, I think that trend definitely exists. Um, my theory is I think lots of people get in front of an art object and we need a little bit more help to kind of understand it. They're kind of maybe a little bit more impenetrable. Um, I think art museums have more of a history of, of using audio guides. I think that has definitely trended over to into a into mobile now into into apps and mobile websites because people are used to the idea that we need to provide some level of help, some level of interpretation, in order to get people engaged with these objects, and that's what these technologies do. Um, outside of that, I think there's I mean I then go to other kinds of museums, the places where I think mobile could be more powerful, more used better. Certainly in history museums, natural history museums, those are two I'm always surprised they don't use mobile as much. But when you get towards zoos and science centers and discovery centers, those are kind of very interactive experiences. I actually don't think mobile is best suited to those kind of areas. I think more kiosk-based experiences are probably more appropriate. Um, I think of a museum of air, of, of air and space, for example, in Washington, D.C. I wouldn't be looking to make a mobile experience in there particularly. I think it's, very, it's a very hands-on experience, whereas maybe in a museum it's a bit more contemplative. So actually I believe that actually art museums in particular are well adapted to mobile. As to why they use them more than natural history museums and, uh, and history museums, I haven't got a huge theory on that. Um, yeah, I haven't really got a big, uh, got a, got some grand, grand solution to that. It just seems to have gone that way. Maybe it's a funding thing. Um, yeah, maybe it, just, it does really just come from the audio guide heritage. I do agree with you on the uh, kiosk with the science museum because uh, the the Uber Housey, uh center that's a annex of the uh, of the one in uh, D.C. the science the space in National Air and Space and they have a kiosk that you can go to and you can look inside. Um, a panoramic view of the uh, any airplane or uh, helicopter space capsule module like and all that and it's really really cool and I really love that I that's probably one of my favorite things to do is go to those kiosks and see that it definitely helps my experience because you can't see inside it you, know, you yep. can only see the outside. So it's nice to be able to have that option of looking at a kiosk like that. So I, I don't agree. know how that would translate to mobile easily. And it's not a problem that it doesn't. I think kiosks are fantastic things. Um, you know, each each platform has its strengths and weaknesses. And that really is it. There's just strengths and weaknesses of some. And we've got to find the right platform for the right place. And I always say the bravest question is to actually design something and then say, actually, is this really an app? Or is it a mobile website, or a book, or a kiosk, or a desktop website? Like the bravest designers will actually get, will actually ask that question throughout their project. 
they'll, they'll start designing and they'll go, actually, guys, what we've designed here is a fantastic thing. It would make them the best book in the world or the best leaflet. It doesn't need to be digital. It doesn't need to be a mobile app. We should make this as dot, 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 whatever it might be. Definitely. Um, so on a similar line of thought, uh, what are your recommendations for integrating a mobile app with the museum's current website? And does it go beyond basic look and feel? That's a good question. Um, it's, you just need to look at these things holistically. There are some things people will turn to an app to do, and there are some things people will turn to a museum's current website to do. They're two different types of platforms. You know, you can use a mobile app. You can build more integrated experiences with an app. You can build more, more, more seamless experiences, more dynamic, more playful, more pixel-perfect designs in an app than you can inside a website. So there's some things that are just physically better done inside an app than they are in a website. Integrating the two together, for me, if you actually thought about why you're doing the app, it shouldn't be too difficult. Because equally, you should have thought why you've got a website. I mean, most museums who have a website, I would hope they have a strategy behind their website. What's its role? What's its purpose? If you know that for the website, then making your app fit with that shouldn't be too difficult. You've just got to be very clear. It comes down to those first months where you do the planning of the project. Why are we doing it? Why does the website exist? Where's the website? What's, what needs the website? Is the website not fulfilling? Maybe it's not fulfilling a need to provide more playful content for families. I mean, but actually, what way we could create a really cool mobile experience for that, based around photography and kind of picture tagging and the Roman and Greek collection. Like you probably couldn't do that on a website, but you can do it on an app. And that's how I believe you make them actually integrated. The, in, the integration actually happens around the needs and purpose of each. To be honest, the look and feel. That's further down the line. That's that for me is just candy floss on top. That's the decoration. It's like little cherry. <laughs> Making it look the same. I mean I want it to look the same. I want my candy floss to all come out pink. But like it really is kind of a decorative element of it. What's more important is why are we doing it? it comes down. Like these are websites and apps, they're just answers. Figure out the question and make sure the questions that each one is answering are holistic. They're not done one by one and they all talk and make sure these parts are talking to each other. Which, again, is really important about why you talk to multiple departments when you're delivering a big digital project. If you do it in, in silo, without talking to these people, you'll find out people are tackling the same questions but in a different way. You'll say, oh, the objective of my app is to create a playful experience, and you'll go and see education. And education will oh, well, that's our objective, and we're making a leaflet. So, well, actually, we should be working together on this. You've got to talk to them to find out they're doing it in the first place. But you'll find out there's lots of crossover on these things. Um, but no, for me, the integration part is actually comes down to the to the um, to the to the planning phase. The look and feel is something which, which is which is later. I mean, that's just branding for me. I agree. <laughs> it's definitely, as you said, it's the it's the fluff, it's the cherry on top, the mm -hmm. look and feel. So it definitely should be later in the process. It's the easiest part to change. You know, ultimately. When you've made, if if you know you you build something, you build a you you build a house. The house is built, and you realize actually it's got three bedrooms too many. It's got a leaky roof, or you know a glass. It's got a glass glass walls in the bathroom. Everyone can see in when you go to the bathroom. Like those are problems in the specification. Those are problems in the planning. You should never have had a glass wall in the bathroom. No amount mm -hmm. of like 
painting plants in the back garden, you know, pruning in the garden to make it look beautiful. We could, you know, repaint the whole damn thing, change your roof, like change your front door, make it look different. That's what look and feel. Still can't get rid of the fact you made it, you put a glass wall in your bathroom. I mean, like, that's what it is. That was a specification problem. Look and feel is the easiest thing to change. Why you did it, the decisions around the planning, they're the difficult ones to go back on. Those are the ones to focus on. What it looks like, I mean, frankly, I... I mean, I, not I don't care, but it's definitely not a strength of mine to say, oh, these colors are better than those ones, or this font's better than that one. That can be changed. That can evolve. That's a really good example to bring up, because I know, um, for me, that's making it a lot easier to understand more of what you're saying when you're using uh, the house examples, because I probably have more ideas with that than mobile technology, so it makes it more relatable to me. So thank you for using those examples. And, you know, I, I developed those examples just for when I talk to cross-departmental groups. Right at the start, you asked, you know, how do you get people invested in these projects? How do you get multiple departments interested? And I made the point that often we hide behind technology. People don't quite understand what we're doing. It's up to us as, as people working in, digital, in the digital field to invest these people, help them understand. So these kind of analogies are actually really important. I use the house analogy all the time. Because it helps people understand what I'm talking about. It's definitely helping me. <laughs> I'm All glad right, to hear that. So, oh, I'm sorry? I'm glad to hear that. All right, carry on. Uh, with the advent of location-based apps that allow for a user experience outside the walls of the museum, how do you see the mobile experience evolving? I mean... Location-based services are exciting. It's one more input you can provide. Um, to be honest, in my dream world, I wish technology didn't change for like five years because um, I think it would take us that long just to become better at using what we've got right now. I think we're like struggling to even like have the space to imagine how best to use the kind of technologies available to us right now. And new technologies, location-based, augmented reality, Google Goggles, that stuff becomes quite noise after a while. I wish we just spent longer thinking, what do we want to do? How do we do it perfectly? Using quite simple technologies. I remember, I, I still relate back to this wonderful app the Smithsonian made called Meanderthal. And all the, all the Meanderthal app does, you take a photo of yourself, and it turns you into a Neanderthal. Very simple functionality. Didn't need any really clever technology to achieve it. It was just a really wonderful concept. It's a really wonderful idea. And... So when you ask me how I see mobile experiences evolving, I just hope they get better. And the way they're going to get better is not by using more technology. This is not a technology problem. It's just actually getting better at using the kind of functionalities and features already existing and thinking beyond typical models, thinking beyond the audio guide model, and thinking actually what can we do is a little bit more creative, a little more better serving to our visitors. And if it uses, I'm not anti-positioning technologies, I think they can be fantastic. I certainly hope they have a future at the Met. But I don't think they are they are a, a game changer as such. I don't think they solve all problems. They can make me very difficult to use. I think they can be sometimes quite confusing for people to use. So sometimes they'll have value, but they're not really a... I wouldn't call them a crutch. I wouldn't call them the, the, the core of a mobile experience. Um, I think they're something that can play a, play an element in delivering a really great seamless experience to someone. But you know, whether, whether, whether an app has positioning technologies or not won't be the make or break point, whether it's good or not. All right, so our last question, we've 
kind of actually touched base on already, but uh, where do you think the future of mobile apps are going to lead us in the next five years, and what do you think visitors are going to experience? Do you know where mobile apps are going to lead us? I have no idea where mobile apps are going to lead us. I think where's digital digital going to lead us? I mean, we're we're that's ultimately where I feel I work. I think I use mobile as a, as a particular platform, but I would prefer to answer that question just about digital. And my way of answering is like we are basically creating new ways for people to have relationships with museums. That's it. We are creating new ways for people to understand and interact with museums. Just fantastically exciting. And what, what's what's going to what's going to change? People are just going to hopefully feel closer to museums, have a relationship to a museum which they don't visit very often, but yet they probably know the artwork of the day. Even like you look how one's relationship to a museum changes just by being a Facebook friend of theirs. Now I would promote the Met, the Met's Facebook page. I think is a really great example of how a museum can use Facebook. They promote the artist, the artwork of the day. They tell you what, who's, which uh, artist's birthday is today, for example. Very small pieces oh, of content, but actually quite playful, quite fun. And you keep up with it. And, you know, honestly, you could not do that in the same way five years ago. They've changed, pe they've changed people's relationship to the museum. And that I find incredibly exciting. And that's what we're doing with digital. We're changing people's relationship to the museum. So in the next five years, what, what will happen? Well, we're going to change more people's relationship with a museum. That's what we're going to do. How we do it? Who knows? But we're going to have fun. We're going to have fun inventing it. We're going to have fun getting there. But I think ultimately, what will change is just the way we interact with museums. We're going to make new things, new things possible. Ultimately, and that is the best digital tools make new things possible. Websites make new things possible. They make it possible to find out a piece of information about a museum or a piece of content in the museum just by a few clicks on, the, on your uh, on your mouse. I mean, seriously, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that wasn't possible. You went and bought the museum catalogue, the book, to find out that mm. information. Or you went to the museum. Like, that is transformative. It's very easy to overlook it. But we made something new possible. And that's what we're going to keep doing with all these different digital tools. 